The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz, an all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right, and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call, or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. This is Rugby Unwrapped, brought to you by The Spin-Off and Halo Sport. Welcome along to what is kind of a bonus episode of Rugby Unwrapped. Scotty Stevenson with you, Simon Porter, CEO of Halo Sport, and we're joined by Tony Lewis and Mike Rogers. Tony is the CEO of Tasman Rugby, Mike the CEO of Bay of Plenty Rugby, and and thank you first and foremost, gentlemen, for uh, giving us the opportunity to have you on board and front-footing this. We wanted to really cover off today Uh, The provincial side of New Zealand's rugby story, we've heard from a lot of the leaders at New Zealand Rugby, board members, we've heard from the players, and uh, now to the guys on the coalface. Tony, first of all, congratulations to you and your union, reigning Premier Champions. So you started the season probably optimistically, and everything's come to a sudden screeching halt. Uh, How do you stand right now as a union? As a provincial union, we're in a a fortunate position. Over the last six years, we've been able to squirrel um, a decent reserves away. Um, So we've had a reserves policy um, and we've we've followed that pretty much very carefully for six years. Um, So uh, we have got um, enough for us to survive. Uh, It's sort of six months uh, of fixed costs. So I think we could probably um, delve into this year a bit and and, and, and a a bit of next. It doesn't mean we're not feeling the pain. We've... uh, had a reduction in staff salaries by 20%. We've removed 40% from the salary lines. And we're looking at actually what um, rugby looks like in the future in the the community space. We'll be governed by the decisions New Zealand Rugby Union make. Um, We certainly don't want to move staff on if they've moved staff on in in their place in that particular role. So it's a bit bit of a wait and see. What about for you, Mike? Is, Is your situation as rosy or as rosy as it can be right now? Yeah, I think it's pretty similar, Scotty. Um, you know, similar approach to what Tasman have done so well uh, down in, down in their region. We were pretty motivated to ensure that uh, we had the future of the union well secured, and, and we've worked pretty hard to ensure we've got cash reserves as well. And you know, if you look at the history of Bay of Plenty, it's pretty checkered, and there's been a lot of ups and downs, and we've certainly been in, in financial strife a number of times. So worked hard um, to make sure that it didn't happen again. I don't think anyone could have predicted the impact of COVID. On, on sport and in the wider community. But yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. Um, it was the same situation in terms of uh, working through with staff and resource and, and, and focusing on what the future of the game is going to um, look like because I think that's the hardest question to answer. While we might be able to work our way through the next six months and, and through the end of the year is how do we prepare for what the future of rugby is going to, um, going to need to throw at us. Before we move too quickly into the future, let's talk about the past and, and what are our provincial unions in the makeup of New Zealand rugby. It's widely known that you guys are the constituent members of New Zealand rugby, the incorporated society. So I, I guess, Tony, where do you see 
the provincial unions in this picture? We know that funding's under threat, but where do you see the unions in terms of their importance to rugby in this country? Yeah, I might have a different view than um, quite a few of my colleagues, whether super or PUs, but I believe everything is an integrated part of rugby um, and we're one of the key integrated parts between club and and super. So I see that um, we're all in this sort of journey. I hate that word. John Mitchell started it, so I'll probably um, um, carry it on. But at the moment, in this sort of idea of trying to work out where everyone fits. Um, if we get suffer from illusions of grandeur and think one part of the jigsaw is more important than, than the other, I, I have a, um, a gut feeling that everything will fall over. So I think provincial unions are a key for the aspirational path of every uh, boy or um, girl playing rugby from JB to age group. And the academy serve that and senior rugby serves that to produce Mod 10, that produce super players, that hopefully then produce All Black. So very key integrated part, and we enjoy being part of that um, process, and it's been very successful over a long period of time. Mike, do you, do you feel similarly? Because I think from an outsider looking in, sometimes it's hard to understand all of the roles. Um, you've got to run ostensibly a semi-professional rugby team at competitive level. Uh, you've got other representative teams underneath uh, that Minor 10 Cup level. Uh, you've got the clubs, you've got the community game. So where do you and how do you divvy up the resources at your disposal? Yeah, it is a complex organisation, Scotty, to, to sort of manage and make sure that we're catering for all those different requirements that you've outlined. I think the first thing is, you know, we see ourselves as an important connector to our community. You know, rugby has a huge role in engaging with our community. So I think that's the strength of the New Zealand rugby model through the provincial system. We can connect, we can engage and, and, and be a big part of the environment right throughout New Zealand. So that's the first and foremost thing for us as a provincial union. What are we doing to ensure that we're connecting to all of our stakeholders, to all of all of our young people that want to play the game? And I think secondly, as Tony's pointed out so well, you know, we, we then connect to, I guess, to that, that performance level of the game, the professional level of the game and ensuring that there is opportunities for any young player right throughout New Zealand, if they're motivated and aspirational, there is, there is a system for them to follow so they can get to that top of the game. And look, you can't you can't even look any further than our new All Black captain Sam Kane as a classic example uh, of that model at its best. You know, a young fella coming out of Rapparoa, you know, moving into Tauranga to further his rugby career, and now he's an All Black captain. So I guess the question would be, if we don't have that integrated model that Tony's talking about and we don't uh, make sure we've got a, a, an approach that cares for the whole game, uh, what would happen to people like Sam Kane? He'd go to St Kent's. <laughs> Possibly. Would he go on to be All Blacks, question, uh, All Blacks captain? That would be the question. I'm surprised it took you five minutes to mention the uh, new All Black captains from Bay of Plenty, Mike. I thought you would have just uh, just want to make sure that that was a public service announcement out there first. I was actually waiting for you, Si, to actually put it out there that Bayer Plenty's got three of the four captains of our national teams. But look, if you want to talk about that, we, we certainly can divert to that space if you want. <laughs> I, I, I forgive the silliness, Mike, but I, I mean, in, in the serious side of this business, we know that you receive funds from New Zealand Rugby. As the members of New Zealand Rugby, you have to go and fundraise yourselves as well. You have to deal with your own sponsors. You have a wage bill to play your players or pay your players at Mitre 10 Cup level. And all of those funding streams at the moment, uh, we, we are certain, 
are coming under significant threat. So, you know, at, at this stage, we've seen New Zealand rugby make cuts. We know that they've cut funding to the unions. Um, when, at what point do those really hard decisions need to be made about where you are going to focus the monies at your disposal? Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really good question. And it's one that we challenge ourselves um, all the time in terms of the balanced approach to how we fund our game and where we invest our funds. Um, and, and so it's not because of COVID and, and this situation. It's always a, a challenge for provincial unions to secure enough funding to do what we want to do in our community and, and pro- provide those pathways and opportunities for aspirational players and coaches, etc. alike. So I think the first thing in terms of that, you know, provincial unions are going to need to be creative in looking at other ways of funding our game. Uh, and so that's the first and foremost thing. We know we've got some traditional revenue streams that are under pressure. Um, so, so I think we need to take some responsibility to look at how we diversify our, our income streams. But equally, I think we have a responsibility as provincial unions to talk to our key funding partners, be it New Zealand Rugby or Trust Funding or our commercial relationships, so they understand the story around why it's so important to invest in this level of the game. And, uh, and you know, that's our job is to really convince people that their money is going into an environment that's getting great success. And, and I think, you know, for the majority of our provincial unions, we can hold our head up high and, and say that we're doing some fantastic work in our community. Um, so that's our job over the next period is to ensure that we do our best to secure the funds for our community. Well, we've got a Minor 10 Cup perspective and it's a great pleasure to welcome for a Heartland perspective to our chat today, Kushla Tangiri Manuel, who's the CEO of Ngati Pro East Coast and also a new appointee to the New Zealand Māori Rugby Board. I believe you're there, Kush. How's things going in the world of Heartland and the world of Ngati Pro? Well, um, you know, finally getting the announcement, it has taken us by surprise, to be honest. We were all not expecting to be able to play rugby until level one. So for that announcement to be made, we're sort of chasing our tails at the moment. You know what coasties are like. I know everyone's going to say we're good to go, um, but really working through the restrictions and what the requirements are going to be for our clubs will be the issue. But having said that, our people really handled um, Level 4 really well and managed to be case-free in Tairawhiti, but, well, on the East Coast. But, you know, we can't take that for granted. That's the power of roadblocks, Kush. <laughs> We've been, that's a whole other show there, Scotty. <laughs> Hey, Kush, we've, we've heard from Tony and Mike today and just them outlining what, what they believe some of their roles and, and pressures are around the Mitre 10 Cup provincial unions. What about the Heartland? You guys made the decision very early in the piece to put Heartland Championship aside this season to reduce some costs, to reduce some pressure in the system. Um, where, where do you see yourselves now for the rest of the year in terms of your responsibilities to your community and to the game? Yeah, and I just want to acknowledge, you know, we appreciate the, the different pressures that the Maritian unions are under um, with, you know, with their players, etc. Us being amateur, we didn't have to have that consideration. Um, but it re- was really helpful that we set our priorities early in the piece. And they were simple, number one, our people, number two, our clubs, and then any representative rugby. And um, NZR sort of took the pressure off us in terms of teenage rugby by making that call for us. Um, but... At the end of the day, just, you know, looking at common sense things like our budgets, we simply couldn't exist potentially next year if we went, went ahead with Heartland. So we're still looking at doing like local derbies, etc., because our people still have the appetite for representative rugby. But our priority now is, is clubs and our communities. And, I mean, you've seen the impact that rugby has around here. 
uh, to quote Bailey, who I'm very proud of, who's um, been appointed to the New Zealand Rugby Board. Uh, rugby's a religion and church starts at 2.30 on Saturday. So everyone's <laughs> keen to get back to church. <laughs> Simon, I, I want to bring you in here because uh, I know that your contracting model doesn't um, spread or, or doesn't go as far as, as Heartland because, as Kusha points out, these are amateur players. But obviously it's a talent pool for you as an agency to look around Heartland Championship and you yourself played in the Heartland Championship uh, as a, a staunch first five, if I recall rightly, Ports, uh, for the old goal. But <laughs> nothing, nothing staunch or talented about what I was doing, I can assure you, Scotty. But I think, I mean, it t- touches a bit on what we talked about in episode one around, you know, there's still, I suppose from a talent pool point of view, the reality is if you want to be a professional player now, it, it is about trying to migrate up to, if you are in a Heartland Union, it is trying to migrate up to one of the provincial uh, Mighty 10 Cup Unions Academy systems. And so, you know, as many people as can remain in their areas at school and try to still get good coaching and be, you know, produced out of that area, the better, I suppose. And, and I mean, Repro College, uh, Sam Kane, he did finish off at Tauranga Boys. Um, and there's plenty of examples like that. But, you know, he still identifies very strongly with that area. And there's plenty of examples of, of people that are playing professionally. You know, think of... Um, you know, the King Country, they're a proud, proud, proud union that's produced a lot of players that, that kick on to other areas. It's just the, the nature of the beast, I suppose. And it's, it's just maintaining as much rugby as we can in those areas to make sure as many people have the opportunity to play. Tony, your province in particular, Tasman, has been a great beneficiary of some Heartland players. I think the likes of Marty Banks and others who have come through uh, the Buller program and then have represented the union and other guys who came through Marlborough and Nelson Bays at the formation of Tasman. So do you still see that as an important pathway, as an important club and player pathway for provincial rugby? Yeah, I see it um, two ways. We have a number of club players who go down and play for Buller and, and West Coast as well. And that their aspiration is that they want to be a Marco player, but they're probably just not quite good enough, and that's their next level. Um, a bit like a first I've aid out of Otago University, Porter, um, having to go up and play for the old golds. Um, so we see that as critically important. In the same breath, a number of those players will come up here. So I think Billy Guyton, who I saw this morning, um, he, he's a classic, and obviously the, the world's most loved player, Marty Banks, um, infamously come out of um, a bull of mine to play and do well for a number of super franchises. I want to talk, Mike, you've, we've got Kusha on the line and it's always a great privilege to catch up. By the way, Kush, congratulations on your appointment to the Māori Rugby Board as well. Uh, we don't want that to go unnoticed. But, Mike, what is the provincial union's relationship to the Heartland? The Māori 10 Cup unions and the Heartland unions, is the relationship strong considering there's 26 provinces in this country and and you've all got to say around the table in one way shape or form yeah I think it is uh, pretty strong uh, Scotty over over the you know length of breadth of New Zealand you know like um, Tony's pointed out there's a good relationship where players can flow both ways and and you know we have our own example and a guy like Aaron Carroll who wasn't quite ready for Mitre 10 Cup uh, went and played for the Swamp Foxes uh, came back and, and made Mitre 10 Cup with us and, and then got a contract to play Super Rugby so I think that's a really good example of how that model does work really well uh, even off the field there's some really good communication uh, between the Mitre 10 Cup provincial unions and Heartland unions because there are still a lot of similarities even though size of unions may be different 
uh, there's, a, there's a range of things that we can talk to each other about and how we can work together, you know, collaboratively, um, e- even in situations where we need to make sure New Zealand rugby understands the position of provincial unions. I think the collaboration uh, across the board is really useful. So I think, personally, I think the relationship's really strong. We love our relationship with our neighbours um, and we're always looking for opportunities to work together. And they're very good socially too, Scotty. <laughs> yeah. I, I can vouch for lead, that. Lead the way. Lead the way. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I ask in the in the sense that over the last four years, in particular, uh, the board makeup of New Zealand rugby has changed dramatically. Uh, that was first mooted in two thousand and seventeen. Gone now are our traditional models of representation, which were zones or regions where. Unions would all have to get together, come up with a nominee, and that nominee would be appointed to the board. That's that's all shifted now. So there seems to be a very big move away from the regionalisation of New Zealand rugby to the centralisation of New Zealand rugby. And, and has that in any way undermined the collaboration between the unions or weakened the bonds that were once there for unions in each region in the country? I can probably talk to this, the fact that we nominated Michael Jones. Um, so I think it's um, the provincial unions have got more um, consistent in their in their voice and the fact that they are putting people forward who are going to support the provincial unions, who understand provincial union r- rugby well and will also look back and make sure that um, this group that's critically important to the growth of the game is their, their voice is heard. So I think the best people are getting on the New Zealand Rugby Union board and the PUs are working really, really hard to ensure that happens. And I think Bailey's another good example of that. You know, uh, having someone out of a, a heartland uh, area is, is it was well supported in terms of the Mitre 10 Cup, from my understanding. Again, best person for the job who understood, you know, the game of rugby right from under fives all the way through. Um, so I think that's just another example of the collaboration across Mata 10 and Heartland Unions to try and do the right thing by the game in our communities. Yeah, and you know, with Bailey, like for Heartland Unions, I mean, you'll you'll know how the voting system works. You know, typically we get about two votes each. So what we've learned over the last three to five years is that our strength is in our collective. So we really have to move together, and that's how we've been getting heard at um, NZR level. So we dis- we made a conscious decision as much as we could to block vote because if if fifty percent of us go one way, then we basically had zero vote. So I mean, he had to work really hard. Everyone had to work hard, but um, it was really um, gratifying for us to be able to go in as a collective and know that we stood with one voice. One of, one of the wee picadillos in the constitution of New Zealand rugby is that the votes each union get are directly uh, attributable to the number of teams. Uh, that are signed up in their region, the number of registered teams. COVID is going to have a massive impact on team registrations in each of your unions. Uh, Has anyone thought about the ramifications of a loss in registration in terms of the votes, number of votes around the NZR table? I'm not sure if it's common knowledge, but we've already um, settled, for want of a better word, on our funding model for this year. And what we're hoping for is next year that that's going to be based on potentially last year's registrations because there's just no telling what's going to happen. And, I mean, we've already been told by um, Mark Robinson that the landscape is going to change. We're not going back to business as usual. So it's all very – we're reimagining rugby at the moment. 
you feel like, Mike, you're also reimagining rugby? I mean, you, you have reimagined rugby in some ways already with your involvement with Global Rapid Rugby. They have plenty of involvement. And just before we get back to, to the point Kushler made, how has that worked out? And is that something that before COVID you saw a decent future in? Yeah, if I just answer your last question around the, the, the representation, it's a really interesting model, you know, which I don't think you'd find uh, in too many organisations, but having senior teams as your benchmark for how you vote, you know, if you look at us, for an example, we've got over 12,500 players uh, and third biggest union in the country, but majority of our players are actually secondary school and junior, and, and they're not really represented in terms of that that structure. So, so it's probably something that will need to be considered into the future around how we ensure that the best representation model is is in place. But to, in terms of the rapid rugby experience, look, it was fantastic. Even though very short lived, we uh, played the one game and were able to scrape a win for the China Lions over in Fiji, which is no mean feat. But the whole concept for us was about providing new opportunities for our players, for our coaches. We saw a, a need. Um, in our environment to do that and that's part of our responsibility we want to be able to look in the future to do the same for our female game and I guess concern for us is you know the ongoing um, pressure that's being placed on the Mitre 10 Cup in terms of its role and its responsibility and importance to the game and so for us in Bay of Plenty that, that's a concerning uh, position we think it's a really important part of the future of our game uh, but equally if, if that's the message that we're getting that that is not um, uh, going to be played at the same level into the future we need all, uh, alternatives for our players and coaches so uh, yeah no, it was a great experience um, ho- hopefully that opportunity continues into the future Scotty because I think it's going to be part of the, the new normal for us. It's an interesting point you raise that we, we're not going to see business as usual. I think the appetite's there, Tony, for a Mitre 10 Cup, uh, but heretofore that's been 14 teams uh, and it's an expensive endeavour. It's I don't know what the figures are, whether you can divulge them, but it would be a significant portion of your annual revenues that go to funding the team and, and funding participation in that competition. Yeah, look, it's a, um, very important. The, the Mitre 10 Cup is a very important revenue stream for us to fund community rugby. Um, if we didn't have a Mitre 10 Cup, um, our revenue to invest in the community rugby would be significantly impacted. Um, and that just goes through the fact that you might employ um, your Mitre 10 Cup coaches, but they are working really, really hard in that community, First 15, Premier Rugby, your analyst is across both community, schools, etc. So, And that's the revenue you earn c- commercially. Um, so... We've correlated basically. There's two staff appointments um, that are funded by the by the the Marco success or revenue um, brought in within the organisation. So um, we see uh, Mitre Ten Cup rugby is critical to any success that we have in the, in the community game. And as I said before, it's an integrated game, and you take one piece of the jigsaw out, and it, it crashes down pretty quickly. I'm sure that. Everyone in New Zealand rugby sort of understands that. So, t- Tony, mate, in terms of like, I've heard you know you and Mike and you know both of your unions are pretty strong and innovative and done pretty well over the last few years without wanting to blow wind up either of you. But I mean, and, and so the you know what I've heard has been pretty positive today. But is that the general feeling across all the provincial unions? Does everyone feel the same about? the Mitre 10 Cup this year and, and getting across the start line? Like, I know you're here to talk about your own individual unions, but I'm sure you are talking as a group and, and now, as a collective. I'll say something, then Mike can say something as well. We haven't even thought about this together, but 
the one thing I would say is that there's 14 provincial unions all on the same page. Um, there's 14 provincial unions that all want to play in, play in the Mitre 10 Cup. And there's 14 provincial unions working really, really hard with New Zealand Rugby and Rob Nicol to get to the start line. Um, like everything in life, it was only, and I'm very careful in our position, it was only a few years ago that we were last in everything. Um, so we wouldn't be standing here and gloating because next year it could be us, you know. Um, so we've got 14 provincial unions who want to play in the, in the Mitre 10 Cup and 14 provincial unions all working hard to ensure that happens. Um, and what and about... Sorry, mate, to interject, but what about, um, does that same apply to the Farah Palmer Cup? The union's all committed to, to wanting to get that off the ground and run that in parallel at the same time? Oh, I'll answer that, you know. So for us, the Farah Palmer Cup is equally as important as the as Moditian Cup, and we've made no secret of, of our investment in the female game and the importance of the female game from a Bay of Plenty's point of view. And, and, and I know it's not out there publicly and there's some frustration with that, but there is some really good work going in behind the scenes in, in terms of ensuring that there's opportunities for our female players as well. Um, I, I think, you know, from a New Zealand rugby point of view, given the huge impact on their revenue, uh, um, you know, getting the Mitre 10 Cup and Super Rugby obviously up and running our priorities because it does generate the revenue at this point of time. And that's hopefully going to mean that we can fund other competitions, including the Palmer Cup. But, you know, from a provincial union point of view, I think there's a real uh, eagerness to have the, the Palmer Cup up in some shape or form this year. Uh, to ensure that we can provide those opportunities for our female players. I totally agree. Yeah, the big, the big question for all of you is, can you afford it? I think I think the game, you know, the Mitre 10 Cup is is a, a big investment. And, and I know Tony's absolutely right, you know, in all, all the conversations we've had with our counterparts, all 14 unions want to be involved in that level of the game. Um, but we've also got to recognise the game is under incredible pressure and so, you know, I think it's going to be something we're going to have to continually look at. How do we do it? How do we do it well? What is its role? Um, and how do people make sure that they're a viable organisation to, con- you know, c- compete in that competition? Um, because I, I think, first and foremost, all of us will acknowledge that our community is the most important part of our remit as a, as a, commun- as a provincial union. We need to make sure that we never je- jeopardise our ability to deliver to our community. Now, for a number of provincial unions, like Tony has said, uh, the Mitre 10 Cup or, or the semi-professional professional game help funds the community game. So from a Bay of Plenty point of view, that's absolutely critical for us to have that level of game to help us fund our community and make sure we can do what we can. But there's others who are in a different situation. So it, it will be, I, I think, a pretty tough time over the next sort of 18 months, two years, as we continue to look at what the future looks like. I guess the, the big thing too, um, Simon, from your point of view, is as Rob Nicol pointed out in episode one, we've got 420 professional rugby players currently playing in competitions around the world. Uh, the Mitre 10 Cup uh, employs a lot of people, albeit on a semi-professional uh, basis. But that's a lot of jobs and a lot of players that suddenly, if they can't play Mitre 10 Cup, might be looking for roles elsewhere in a time when the world's market is contracting, not expanding. So do we risk not just losing people to the game here, but losing people to the game full stop if we cannot find ways to fund this kind of competition in our own backyard? Well, yeah, I suppose we will. Like... um but then again, if it's not sustainable and there's not the money in the game and if, if there aren't the jobs overseas or the, the, the um, experiences and money uh, overseas isn't worthwhile anymore, then 
you know, you will see players wanting to come back and play back in New Zealand. Um, what that might look like and what does that mean? Does that mean that there's less opportunity for the young guys coming through because guys want to hang around for a bit longer? I don't know. I haven't really thought it through yet. Um, but, yeah, when you say there's lots of people playing rugby overseas, there's a lot of people sitting not playing rugby overseas at the moment. It's probably a little bit more accurate. Wanting to play and going crazy in isolation. Um, but it, it will be really interesting on that player, on the player market um, as to the psyche of the player moving forward. Um, if there are continued travel restrictions over the next few years or if people have got young kids or whatever, it's going to be really interesting to see if there is a shift in mentality um, and people aren't so keen to go uh, or people do want to um, stay in New Zealand for longer or even return. Ports, it's also, I think, important that the, the what, what the competition can afford to pay players needs to be factored in. You know, you can't expect anyone to work in an industry or a sector where they're, where they're not getting paid fairly for what they're doing, you know. So so it's a real balancing act, isn't it? You know, we do, we do need to consider the cost and the viability, but at the same time, it's like anything. If you want a good product, you've got to pay you know a reasonable amount for a good product. So so that's that's the challenge for us. I think at the provincial union level is ensuring that we do, we do have a good product for our players and make sure we fairly remunerate them. Yeah, because I, I think sorry, you go. Oh, well, Tony, I'll just say that's what I kind of mean about the sustainability question. If if we can't continue to pay people to play the game at the level, well, you know, pay them enough that they are prepared to sacrifice careers or education or whatever, then, you know, people just won't play. And I guess that's the that's the biggest issue with Moda 10 Cup is as salaries have trended down over the last few years, that, you know, are people going to want to continue to do it um, if they are semi-professional and we all know that it's not supposed to be their primary source of income is, is what it says in the collective, etc. Um, at what point does it just become too much of a hassle to get four months off work um, or, you know, can they, can they actually make it work by just the income they're going to receive for that four months and doing a bit of odd job everywhere else? That's the that's the really difficult bit as we look into the future as to the time commitment and the reward for, for playing in this competition. And that's one of the benefits, Scotty, that we saw out of Rapid Rugby is we could provide players in New Zealand the opportunity to have two incomes from rugby and they could operate in a professional environment or a semi-professional environment for near on 12 months of the year and prepare them for super rugby or whether they went to Europe or Japan, that, that was the motivation. So it was great to be able to pick up some players from Southland and Waikato and North Harbour and give them an opportunity to play rugby uh, versus having to go back on the tools. So, yeah, it's, it's maybe something as provincial unions we, we need to consider more. How do we do that? Kush, what, what motivates people to play club rugby in Ngāti East Coast country? Because there is no money at the end of it for representative jerseys. Uh, they're not doing it for cash, uh, but yet every year you're fielding a team in the heartland, have done until this year. What, what's the motivation for your players in your community? Well, that's funny. You know, listening to these guys speak, I'm thinking that's the dilemma. Eh? You don't realise until you're in rugby how much goes on in the in the background, you know, and that rugby is business. Whereas, you know, the guys here, they just want to get on the field and play. And I was thinking about, you know, worst case scenario, say we lose all the support from New Zealand rugby, because we don't know What's going to happen once, you know, they make the announcement about staff cuts, etc. That'll probably give us an indication of what the future might look like, what what they're prioritising. So um, with that in mind, I thought, you know, our clubs could probably survive without us, without New Zealand rugby, because they just want to play rugby. And so we're lucky, you know, talking about relationships with Māori 10 unions, 
we're so far removed geographically, you know, it's, it's, um, it's real effort to keep connected. Um, so luckily the brand is still strong enough that people still want to come home and wear the sky blue and play for their iwi. So we're lucky in that effect, being the only iwi-based um, team in the world. Um, like you've discussed, we're, we're amateur, so we can't pay people per se. Um, a couple of our players drove off their own backs yesterday, last year, one from Palmerston North, and I don't know if anyone's driven to Rotoria from Palmerston North, but that's that's quite an effort every weekend to get back and play. So... Oh. I reckon it's the feed. Or, or that's, it's oh, got to be the motivation, right? It's the best place right? to play rugby. Best place be. to play no, rugby. Number, oh. number one. The crayfish. Mate, Ooh. you don't have to pay players. You put a feed on like that, <laughs> like you, you'll get anyone. So I yeah, think Southland should do the same with oysters. <laughs> <laughs> the difference when you live around Tide Alfredi, though, is that's nothing unusual, that feed. It's yeah. only for the out-of-towners where it looks like a bonus. So, I presume then, things have changed a little bit, though. When I, I had a game there and I went into the um, club rooms afterwards and I asked for a Coke and, or a Powerade or something, they looked at me funny. I said, I just want a non-alcoholic drink, and they gave me one of those <laughs> croc. They literally gave me one of those croc. They said, go help yourself in the kitchen. All right, I'll get a Stylager <laughs> on the way out there. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do want to, I mean, you, you bring up some interesting points, Kush, because um, you are going to see what the priorities are for New Zealand rugby going forward. Um, as an outsider looking in, we know that there is a constant tension between where they feel they need to step in in a community side of their game and the high performance and commercial side of their game. Do you, as a group, Tony, Mike, Kush, feel like a lot more of the community workload is going to be pushed back down into the provinces rather than uh, the centralised model that currently exists? Just, I think we've been doing the work anyway, to be honest. Um, I, I think um, the, the role of New Zealand rugby is to give us direction, uh, programs, and then it's been the people on the ground that's delivered them. Um, so... I don't see a dramatic change. Um, I, I, what I suppose would be the, the interesting part would be the professional development that New Zealand rugby has offered to our staff um, that will probably cease to exist because those staff members might not or might not be there. So um, I'd like to think that we will still deliver outstanding programs at the provincial level um, and probably just not receive as much guidance. But one thing has shown me in this Zoom conferencing world there's nothing stopping now the community rugby uh, managers, uh, RDOs, referees, etc., getting together and sharing ideas. Mike, do you see it similarly? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's going to be what level of resource we can we can have in place to support our community game. I, I like Chrysler think our community game, our, our people love it so much they'll make it happen. Um, you know, there'll be a way, but how much uh, support we can provide our clubs and our schools to enable them to do it successfully is going to be the question we don't know yet. But like Tony, I agree, you know, the workload at a, at a provincial level is right through Heartland and Monitin uh, Cup is, is huge. And the game's growing so quickly with sevens and, and the growth of the female game, which is amazing, uh, and the growth of Ripper Rugby and new formats. It, it's just creating more and more work. And then when you overlay that with all the new, you know, health and safety compliance and, and now COVID measures, it's... It's, uh, it puts a huge amount of pressure on the community game um, and at a provincial uh, level because you've just got to deliver everything and it just keeps compounding with the with less or, or, if you're lucky, retaining the same level of staff. So, yeah, we're going to have to change. We're going to have to be innovative and creative and, and where, where it you know, sort of drops, I'm not 100% sure yet. 
definitely agree with you, Mike, in terms of, you know, having to deliver more with the same amount of resource and same amount of staff. So, and, you know, especially when funding's attached to it, but there's just not the appetite in some of our communities for those. They just want to play 15, sevens and get on with it, you know? But we're obliged to deliver these other options that put a burden on our resource. Uh, thanks, Scotty. That's a challenge for the game and how, how we invest in it. You know, we've obviously seen Super Rugby grow and the professional end of the game grow and the resource uh, going into that side of it grow. Um, however, you know, at the provincial level, if, if you have a close look, it hasn't grown in terms of resource really across the board. It's, if anything, it's probably retrenched over the last sort of five years. So it's trying to, again, go back to that balanced approach of ensuring that, that you know, the game is invested at all levels, not, not just at one level, because I think Tony said it quite rightly at the start of this conversation, it's got to be an integrated model. That's been the strength of rugby in New Zealand for so long. And if you ask anyone from any other country, that, that's, that's been our competitive advantage. Um, so I would hate to see that, that change to a point where we don't have that integrated model. Tony, do you see yourself as a competitor to Super Rugby in some ways? Because Super Rugby has obviously been given the green light to return. We know there's private equity floating around in that game that New Zealand Rugby is very keen to appease. Uh, you are a stakeholder in the Crusaders, the most successful of all Super Rugby teams here. So what is your relationship as a province to that Super Rugby side? And, and are you precluded from actually looking to develop a super rugby team of your own as Tasman if our competitions become much more localised? Uh, good question. Um, so we see ourselves as a, um, a very much a partnership with Canterbury and um, ourselves and the, and the Crusaders. So much so if they do make a loss, we'll be stumping up for it. Um, so from our perspective is that we work very hard on that partnership um, and to make sure it goes um, to the to, to the benefit of Tasman, the benefit of our players, etc. Do I see ourselves as a competitor? Um, I, I don't see um, the Tasman Rugby Union playing the Mitre 10 Cup as a com- competitor. I see that we're an essential tool to enable the next generation of young men uh, in that and in, in the far apart for Farmer Cup young, young ladies to go to the, that next level. So that's what I see our role is. Would we consider a super team option? Um, as you've just pointed out, everything's on the table these days. Uh, we looked at the global rapid rugby um, concept and and, uh, and worked actually with Mike for quite some time, but we just couldn't make it financially work from where we're sitting a fair way away from international um, uh, airports. So we would look at anything. Um, there's an appetite in the provincial unions to make sure we work much closer with our super and obviously expect our super to work much closer with us. Mate, what, Mike, maybe you'd answer this, but obviously you guys are, um, you're not host provincial unions to a super rugby team. If you were CEO of a Waikato or a Auckland, et cetera, you know, how about, do you think you'd answer that, or your colleagues would answer that competitor question differently, seeing as you're, you're fishing in the same pond and to some degree? 100% in sponsorship. Yeah, I, th- I think I think there's certain areas where that where they are competing, um, not not by probably uh, you know animosity you know in that relationship. It's just that there's a limited market, a limited scale in that market, and you've got two two teams, one semi-professional, one professional. So yeah, I think in that regard they are competitors, but there's also advantages as well that, that as you would well know, ports for for a number of years that those central locations have had in terms of player recruitment and other things. So I think there's a balanced approach to that. Um, yeah. The other thing to look at is that the vast majority of super team sponsorship 
revenues coming out of Auckland. And so I think being in the same area is not as uh, important as it, uh, as much as a competition as it was. So if you if you want to see the amount of time Mike Collins is driving up the, uh, the, the the motorway, that should give you a fair idea where he's getting his money from. Oh, I thought that's where he's getting some of his players too, Tony. <laughs> but but well, to be fair, to be but fair, there's nothing he, wrong with players coming from St Kent's. We've got quite a few. To be fair, he would be following behind your car, wouldn't he? Yeah, must be a pretty well beaten track down into Hastings <laughs> at the moment. Then too, Mike from Tauranga, is it? Yeah. We're part of the bay, aren't we? It's all big part of that greater bay area ports. Oh, I think he's got an RDO down there, what I hear. <laughs> he lives down there, I think, that's right. She has a name guys, with me, actually. You guys are all fishing in very well-populated waters here, but Kush, what, what about you? you uh, do you feel like you have any connection at all to a Super Rugby side from an East Coast point of view? Well, obviously we're part of the Hurricanes franchise, so um, they do really good work with our with our youth. Um, but from the Super Team, not as much as we'd probably like. Um, we have reached out and offered to host a, host the Hurricanes training camp here in Ngātipo, Um But again, everything comes back to budget. Um, but I'm really pleased that the Hurricanes Youth Council are bringing a program to um, Rotoria this year. You heard it first here. I'm not sure if it's been announced. So that's great. And I mean, it's just, it's ironic that we're geographically closer to, ba- um, you know, to, to Bay of Plenty, but we're part of the Hurricanes franchise. So uh, we remain loyal and would like more interaction. Well, that is interesting that it's, and, and again, this raises another question. It's, it's the Hurricanes Youth Council that is coming calling. So it's a super rugby side that is coming in to do that kind of work in your community. And yet, I think as we've ascertained in this chat, there are some crossovers between what Super Rugby should be representing and the performance and professional pathway and what the unions have traditionally taken care of. So is there room for all players? And and does it strike you as weird when a Super Rugby team focuses on youth in your neck of the woods? Oh, I think it's because, you know, we've actively become more involved in the Hurricanes um, Youth Council as well. Um, even though one of my frustrations, and that's one of the things I hope to pursue on the Māori board, is it's really hard for us to be competitive at those competitions. You know, we, we've got a composite team, under-15s um, under team, because our high schools don't have first-15s anymore because we simply don't have the roles. So um, it's been really good to get involved at Tini Māori level, where not only are we competitive, but we're successful, you know, won both our grades last year. So there's a lot of work to be done. Don't want to move away from the Hurricanes Youth Council, but uh, it's going to come down to whether or not we can continue to invest in competitions that we're not successful in, not, not even competitive in, you know, is it good for morale? We're proud to say we have so many representative teams entering these tournaments, but... Um, the results aren't very pretty. Kush, mm. I know we've uh, all got to wrap this up pretty quickly, so I just want to finish with some thoughts from you, if you could. What, what's the biggest challenge facing Ngāti Parau East Coast and your Heartland colleagues in the next few months? I think it can be wrapped up in sustainability. Like, what does the future landscape look like and can we survive? I've already said, and I mean, you guys said it too, clubs will make it happen. Communities will make it happen, but what does the future of our unions look like? Trying to be optimistic and excited about the opportunity that we all have now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, optimism's not going for a price. It's always free, that's for sure. Uh, Kush, thanks very much. Mike, what about you? Um, Look, are you optimistic about what lies ahead for provincial rugby in this country, given its relationship with NZR, the review that's currently in process, the COVID situation to get over, and and the rather tenuous grasp still on, on a Mitre 10 Cup full season? 
God, you set the scene well there, Scotty. Thanks. Um, <laughs> no, like, I, I, well, I, I guess like anything, there's opportunities in situations like this. So that, that's going to be the thing that, that we have to get our head around. And as provincial unions, I don't think we've been great historically at really sharing our voice and being out there and proactively communicating what we think our roles and responsibilities are. I think we're always being guilty of waiting for New Zealand rugby or super rugby to make the first decisions and then we react to those decisions. So I think the opportunity is, is staring us in the face as a collective group and I, and I, I mean that as Heartland and, and my 10 Cup. We've got to be really proactive in, in going back to New Zealand and saying this is what we believe the future of the game looks like. These are what are important elements from a provincial union's point of view. And, and hopefully we get a really um, good hearing and, and we get a good outcome for our communities. Tony, I'll leave you to finish up, mate. Well, pretty similar to Mike and Kish. Basically, if I believe you sit on your ass and wait for something to happen. Nothing will. Um, so, and, and that's every part of life. So we won't be sitting here waiting for... Uh, New Zealand rugby or the Crusaders or Australian rugby or world rugby to throw out um, a silver spoon to us while we're getting off our backsides and, and trying to make this happen. Um, you know, they, New Zealand rugby didn't give us a test match because it was nice to take one to the regions. They gave it to us because they're going to make a hell of a lot of money from it. So I think we've got a unique opportunity to work together and I include New Zealand rugby, the super franchises, the PUs, um, all the way down to clubs and schools to really define what the next 10 to 15 years um, looks like. I think we sometimes uh, look and look back too much and, do, and don't look forward, um, but this, we must learn from history. And history clearly tells me that when our three major identities are all working in the same direction, we can achieve anything. Well, I look forward to the results, guys. The clock's ticking. Kush, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you, Mike Rogers. Thank you also, Tony. And Simon, also thank you. And Halo Sport for helping present this on the spin-off. This has been Rugby Unwrapped, the provincial edition, and we'll catch up with you next time. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, Scotty. Thanks, Thanks Scotty. Scotty. And that was Rugby Unwrapped, brought to you by the spin-off and Halo Sport. Rugby Unwrapped was produced by Maddie Walker, Eddie Fifield, Amber Easby, Duncan Greve, Scotty Stevenson, and Andrew McDowell. This episode of Rugby Unwrapped was made possible by the support of the Spinoff members. If you'd like to support our work, donate today at thespinoff.co.nz slash members. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spinoff. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spinoff member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.